should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, Love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome to the show. It's Friday, so that means I'm out. And it's also hashtag FOF or FOF. Friends on Fridays. This Friday, we will broadcast John Zipper's week to week show. The program today is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And now here's Week to Week with John Zipperer. I'm John Zipperer, the host of the Commonwealth Club's Week to Week Politics Program. You can find out more about Week to Week and all of the Commonwealth Club's many programs, including videos and audio, at CommonwealthClub.org. Now let's join this week's program. Good afternoon and welcome to today's meeting. I'm the Judge John Crown Professor of Law Emerita at uh, Stanford University Law School, uh, its first Emerita Professor. Um, I'll be the moderator for today's program, The Legacy of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. We also welcome our listening and internet audiences and invite everyone to visit us online at www.commonwealthclub.org. Now it's my pleasure to introduce Scott Dodson, professor of law at UC Hastings College of Law and editor of the book, The Legacy of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, which has a series of remarkable essays about the justice, all admiring and positive uh, but the surprising thing about it is that there's very little repetition uh, among these essays. They're all quite different from each other. Um, there will be a book signing after the program. So now would you please welcome Professor Scott Dodson. Well, uh, thank you to Celia and the Commonwealth Club for having me and for Professor uh, Babcock for moderating and to all of you to coming to he hear me talk about uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and her legal legacy. Much of what I have to say today comes from the authors of the chapters of the book, uh, which I edited. So let me begin by giving some credit to them for their wonderful insights about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, which I largely synthesized today. I thought I'd spend some time talking at the outset about her early history and what has motivated her to focus her efforts on combating sex discrimination. Then I'd like to talk about her role in shaping the legal doctrine that has advanced notions of gender equality. And finally, I'll broaden beyond gender equality to explain how I see her jurisprudence affecting other issues, 
of bias in the law, including affirmative action and same-sex marriage. And of course, I hope to leave ample time for questions. I'll start with the personal stuff, though I hope to show how relevant her personal history really is. Born and raised in Brooklyn, Ginsburg was the daughter of a not very successful furrier turned haberdasher. She went to public schools and excelled as a student and a baton twirler and majorette. <laughs> she graduated valedictorian and Phi Beta Kappa from Cornell, where she met her husband, Marty, and was accepted to Harvard Law School. Harvard had not admitted women students until 1950, and they were still an oddity in 1956, Ginsburg's 1L year. Ginsburg's entering class of 552 Harvard Law students contained only nine women. The professors knew all of them, and so did Dean Irwin Griswold, who hosted a reception for them and pointedly asked each woman why she occupied a place that would otherwise have gone to a man. At Harvard, Ginsburg proved herself an outstanding student and was elected to the Harvard Law Review. Her husband graduated from Harvard Law School in her second year and accepted a position in New York City with a white shoe law firm. Wanting to join him there with their three-year-old daughter, she applied to Harvard for permission to complete her third year studies at Columbia Law School. Despite the school's practice of frequently granting male students such permission, Dean Griswold told her that she had not made out a case of exigent personal circumstances to justify the move, and he denied her request. Ginsburg promptly withdrew from Harvard and transferred to Columbia. Some years later, Harvard Dean Albert Sachs in 1971 offered her a Harvard diploma, <laughs> conditioned upon her renunciation of her Columbia degree. <laughs> she responded, I hold, hold only one earned degree. It is from Columbia. I treasure it and will have no other. <laughs> at Columbia, as at Harvard, she was elected to the Law Review, and she graduated in 1959, tied for first in her class. Nevertheless, she could not find a job with a law firm. She was recommended for a Supreme Court clerkship, but Justice Felix Frankfurter wouldn't even interview her. She was also turned down by Judge Learned Hand, who told a mutual friend he couldn't hire a woman because he couldn't swear in front of her. She finally got a job clerking for District Judge Edmund L. Palmieri, who was persuaded by Professor Gerald Gunther to give her a trial run, despite his reluctance to hire a woman with a young child. Gunther secured the job by a threat and a promise. He warned Palmieri that his future supply of Columbia law clerks would dry up if he refused to hire Ginsburg, but he also guaranteed the judge a male replacement clerk if the relationship did not work out. After clerking, Ginsburg went into teaching, where gender equality was only slightly ahead of its time. Her first tenure-track appointment was at Rutgers, where Dean Willard Heckel carefully explained to her that it was only fair to pay her less than her male counterparts because her husband had a very good job. Although these acts of discrimination surely stung her, she understood that these were products of the times. She worked hard to overcome them, which she did successfully, but she knew she shouldn't have had to overcome them, and she knew that many other women couldn't. She also knew that times never stay the same, and that sex discrimination didn't always have to be this way. With that knowledge, after getting tenure at Rutgers, she embarked on a crusade of sorts 
to begin combating sex discrimination and changing the law and society. She lateraled to the tenured faculty at Columbia Law School, where she was the first woman tenured there. She published the seminal textbook on sex discrimination, and she co-founded the Women's Rights Project at the ACLU, where she was its general counsel for several years. She argued six cases before the United States Supreme Court, winning five, a remarkable record for anyone, to say nothing of a woman in the early 1970s. As an advocate, she was a brilliant tactician, cautious, precise, and single-mindedly aimed at one goal, winning. Knowing that she had to persuade male, establishment-oriented judges, she often picked male plaintiffs. For example, one case involved a traveling salesman in Oklahoma named Charles Moritz, who had claimed a dependent care deduction on his taxes for money spent to take care of his 89-year-old mother while she, he was on the road. The IRS had disallowed the deduction, noting that Congress had allowed it only for women and divorced or widowed men. Charles Moritz was single and had never been married, so the IRS said he was ineligible. Moritz argued that if he were a dutiful daughter instead of a dutiful son, he would have been allowed the deduction. For Ginsburg, the solution was to ask the court not to invalidate the statute, but to apply it equally to both sexes. She won in the Tenth Circuit, and the government appealed to the United States Supreme Court. In its petition for certiorari, the government said, that the lower court's decision cast a cloud of unconstitutionality over literally hundreds of federal statutes. And to prove its point, the government appended to its brief a list of those hundreds of statutes. <laughs> the government had no idea it was handing Ginsburg a roadmap. <laughs> For these were the very laws that she would litigate and challenge over the next decade. In these years, Ginsburg's wins laid a path that she would later draw upon when she sat on the Supreme Court. These seminal decisions of gender discrimination marked two principal victories. The first victory was a shift in focus to gender discrimination. Until Ginsburg's efforts, the Equal Protection Clause had largely been restricted to race discrimination. Under Ginsburg's advocacy, the court came to see equal protection as an important principle of gender equality as well. The second victory was the way in which she pushed for gender equality. Ginsburg was no McKinnon feminist. Catherine McKinnon focused on the linkage of sexuality and male dominance over women. For her, women were born, degraded, and die, and men are responsible. Ginsburg's vision could not have been more different. She blamed not men, but entrenched norms of gender roles. The antiquated notion that, as a matter of nature, men were breadwinner leaders and women were homemaker caregivers. These gender roles were indeed entrenched. A series of Supreme Court decisions repeatedly upheld laws reinforcing those roles, such as denying married women the right to practice law, justifying protective labor legislation on the grounds of women's maternal function, upholding a state's exclusion of women entirely from a line of work, and refusing to allow women to serve on juries. The court's justification in each case was the protection of women, a benign classification to give the weaker vessel space to fulfill her prescribed societal role of mother and homemaker. Ginsburg sought gender equality by dismantling these gender roles. In her view, 
forced gender roles diminished the ability of women to reach their full potential as equal citizens. That vision allowed her to represent male plaintiffs like Charles Moritz just as readily as female plaintiffs, for the erosion of male gender roles naturally eroded the commitment to female gender roles as well. At the same time, Ginsburg retained a highly individualistic approach to equality. I happen to think that the years of discrimination that she faced personally honed her senses to the ways the law affects individuals in addition to groups. Thus, unlike McKinnon, Ginsburg sees nothing inherently bad or wrong about a woman who chooses to be a wife, a mother, and a homemaker. To the contrary, she believes such a choice is for each individual to make. After all, she herself had been a devoted wife and mother, supporting her husband Marty in his early career as a high-powered New York lawyer. Instead, Ginsburg objects to the way gender roles restrict women's choice and freedom. That restriction is itself subordinating. This sense of gender equality came out in force in Ginsburg's seminal opinion in United States versus Virginia, a Virginia Military Institute case that first applied intermediate heightened scrutiny to gender classifications. VMI was an all-male state military academy, and it justified its exclusion of women on the rigorous physical standards and important camaraderie that marked its program. Ginsburg and most of her colleagues on the court were unpersuaded. Perhaps it was true that most women would not want to meet the rigorous demands of VMI, but the state could not exclude women who could pass muster. Ginsburg wrote, the state may not rely on overbroad generalizations about the different talents, capacities, or preferences of males and females, generalizations about the way women are, estimates of what is appropriate for most women, no longer justify denying opportunity to women whose talent and capacity place them outside the average description. Ginsburg's legacy of gender equality from her ACLU victories to VMI has far broader implications for the way we view equality under the law in a number of other circumstances, and let me say a few words about each. First, pregnancy. It may seem surprising now, but it was not always the case that gender discrimination necessarily encompassed pregnancy discrimination. The idea was that a discriminator who favored non-pregnant women over pregnant women was not discriminating on the basis of gender. Ginsburg's idea of gender bias changed the way the law views pregnancy. In a case she litigated for the ACLU called Struck, Ginsburg represented an Air Force service woman who was immediately terminated when she became pregnant. Ginsburg argued that the policy reflects arbitrary notions of a woman's place wholly at odds with contemporary legislative and judicial recognition that individual potential must not be restrained nor equal opportunity limited by law-sanctioned stereotypical prejudgments. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. Thank you.
And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. She emphasized that laws imposing traditional sex roles on pregnant women, women deny individuals equal opportunity and perpetuate the secondary social status of women. She wrote, Heading the list of arbitrary barriers that have plagued women seeking equal opportunity is disadvantaged treatment based on their unique childbearing function. Until very recent years, jurists have regarded any discrimination in the treatment of pregnant women and mothers as benignly in their favor. But in fact, restrictive rules, and particularly discharge for pregnancy rules, operate as built-in headwinds that drastically curtail women's opportunities. Decisions of this court that span a century have contributed to this anomaly, presumably well-meaning exaltation of women's unique role in bearing children has, in effect, restrained women from developing their individual talents and capacities and has impelled them to accept a dependent subordinate status in society. Ginsburg thus argued that traditions of regulating women during pregnancy are not in fact benign, but instead play a key role in imposing on women subordinate social status. This view of pregnancy extends naturally to abortion. Ginsburg has long lamented Roe, which she criticizes both for moving too quickly and for placing emphasis on due process rather than on equal protection. The principle of equal protection lurks within every abortion argument. Nowhere is this clearer than in Ginsburg's 2007 dissent in Carhart versus Gonzalez. The court supported a federal ban on late-term abortion that lacked an exception for the health of the mother. Justice Ginsburg took the unusual step of reading her emphatic dissent from the bench. She dismissed as reflecting ancient notions about women's place that have long since been discredited the court's concern for the mental and emotional health of women whose doctors might fail to describe the procedure in detail in order to spare their feelings. The court, she said, deprives women of the right to make an autonomous choice even at the expense of their own safety. She ended, there was a time not so long ago when women were regarded as the center of home and family life with attendant special responsibilities that precluded full and independent status under the Constitution. In the Casey decision, the court made clear that these views are no longer consistent with our understanding of the family, the individual, and the nation. Their ability to realize their full potential, the court had recognized, is intimately connected to their ability to control their reproductive lives. Thus, legal challenges to undue restrictions on abortion procedures do not seek to vindicate some generalized notion of privacy. Rather, they center on a woman's autonomy to determine her life's course and thus to enjoy equal citizenship stature. Second, race. Ginsburg's conception of equal protection as applied to gender applies equally to race. Equality is not race blind. Rather, it is attentive to the ways in which race and race discrimination affect people's lived experiences. It does not assume that we have overcome our long history of race discrimination, but instead examines the ways in which this history continues to shape institutional structures and curtail opportunity. It is an understanding that has animated not only Ginsburg's service on the court, but also her entire career as a lawyer. Thus, it is not surprising that VMI, Ginsburg's most famous opinion on gender equality, should be the one that most fully articulates this understanding for race equality as well. 
In the nearly two decades that have passed since VMI, Ginsburg has consistently applied the principles articulated in that opinion to constitutional questions involving race. She has, for instance, repeatedly voted to uphold race-based educational affirmative action programs designed to achieve a critical mass. Race-based disparities continue to plague education, housing, employment, government contracting, and healthcare. And in all these contexts, Ginsburg has argued, the disparities reflect historical and ongoing discrimination against racial minorities. Affirmative action programs are designed to ameliorate these disparities and to distribute opportunities to communities that have long been denied them. They also serve, Ginsburg has argued, to dissipate racial stereotypes, to challenge the traditional and unexamined habits of thought that continue to deprive racial minorities of equal standing in American society. Were our nation free of the vestiges of rank discrimination long reinforced by law, she once wrote, it might make sense to treat all race-based classifications the same. But, she argued, we are not far distant from an overtly discriminatory past, and the effects of centuries of law-sanctioned inequality remain painfully evident in our communities and schools. In light of these historical realities, consistency in the form of colorblindness impedes, rather than speeds, the realization of equal protection. Ginsburg echoed this point in her tour de force dissent in Shelby County versus Holder, a 2013 decision that gutted a major component of the Voting Rights Act. There, the court chided Congress for failing to recognize that history did not end in 1965, and that Americans today have substantially overcome their taste for discrimination. Ginsburg's dissent responded that although race discrimination is no longer so overt, it is not gone. Rather, it has evolved into subtler, second-generation barriers. Sometimes such barriers can be difficult to recognize as such without appreciating the history that gave rise to them, which is why Ginsburg decried the court's willful blindness, its whitewashing of the nation's long and ongoing struggle with race discrimination in the context of voting. Race consciousness in the pursuit of racial equality is not, and has never been, she argued in Shelby County, a problem under the Equal Protection Clause. As she concluded in her dissent, the sad irony of today's decision lies in its utter failure to grasp why the Voting Rights Act has proven effective, throwing out preclearance when it has worked and is continuing to work to stop discriminatory changes in voting procedures, is like throwing away your umbrella in a rainstorm because you are not getting wet. And finally, I want to say a few words about gay rights. Ginsburg's equal protection jurisprudence has always attended to history and the particular experiences of different groups in the American system. For race and sex, that history was clear. It is also clear for gays and lesbians. Yet only slowly have gays and lesbians been included in the legal understanding of equal protection. The first state statutes prohibiting employment discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation were passed in Wisconsin in 1982. Today, 29 states and the federal government still lack such prohibitions. In the mid-1990s, discrimination against gays and lesbians was at an apex. Congress passed the Defense of Marriage Act and Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Colorado passed a constitutional amendment barring anti-discrimination laws based on sexual orientation. In a remarkable turnaround over the last two decades, things have changed considerably. Marriage no longer merges the civil identity of a woman in that of her husband. Children have been unburdened from the stigma and disadvantages attendant upon the status of illegitimacy. 
and decisions about children's best interests no longer turn on parents' sexual orientation or marital status. Gay marriage intersects two distinct doctrines. First is the due process, liberty-based doctrine of marital privacy. The second is the anti-discrimination doctrine of equal protection. Due process has dominated issues like contraception, sexual activity, and abortion. And today, even those hardcore opponents of gay marriage have, perhaps seeing the writing on the wall, changed their tune to focus on the sanctity of marriage as a fundamental right of substantive due process. Many now even support gay marriage, not because of equality principles, but instead for the goal of fortifying a haloed status of marriage. We may very well see that doctrinal stand come out in the court's opinions when it decides the same-sex marriage cases later this month, but I suspect that we will also see the equality strand too. And that strand will have Ginsburg's legacy all over it, even if she is not the opinion's author. Windsor, the recent gay marriage case, supports this. Kennedy's majority opinion, with which Ruth Bader Ginsburg joined, devoted three pages to listing some of the most grievous burdens that the federal prohibition on gay marriage placed on same-sex couples. The line from Ginsburg's ACLU victories and her VMI opinion to Windsor is not hard to trace. Barring one set of persons from the institution of marriage burdens those persons and prevents them from obtaining full citizenship stature, as surely as does a law prohibiting a woman from being a lawyer. These cases thus comprise a coherent vision of equal protection in the law. That vision strives to erode the social constructions and stigmas that deprive individuals and groups of the American promise of equal protection to all. That vision is pure Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Thank you all for coming and listening. Thank you, Scott. And uh, now it's time for the question and answer period. Let me remind you that I'm Professor Barbara Babcock, today's moderator. Uh, and I'll start with a couple of my own questions. Uh, when your book first came to hand, I was curious about your connection with Justice Ginsburg. I assumed that you must have been her law clerk or she was your professor at some point, but nothing was apparent from the text. Why did you choose her as a topic? What drew you to the justice? Yeah, so that's a great question. Uh, I'm not connected with her, uh, and I didn't even uh, meet her before I began writing this book, or, uh, spearheading the project. Uh, she unknown to many people, is uh, a proceduralist at heart. She began her teaching career teaching legal procedure rather than equal protection or gender law. Uh, and I am a civil proceduralist too. And as I taught my classes and wrote my papers, I kept encountering her clear, insightful, rigorous, casebook-worthy opinions. And I thought, here is a kindred spirit. I knew her uh, legacy in equal protection quite well, and I thought, after 50 years involved in the law, there really ought to be a book about her. And so I wrote to a number of people and said, what do you think? Do you think this would be a good idea? Would she hate the idea? And they all responded, it's a wonderful idea. She'd love it, and can I write for the book? And so it was very easy to get a list of people, great people, 
to write chapters on her legal legacy from a variety of different perspectives. I ended up um, writing to her as well and just saying, Dear Justice Ginsburg, I'm going to be writing a book about you. Uh, I'll send you a copy. And she wrote me back and said that it sounded like a wonderful idea and that she would love a copy. Uh, I then finished the book and sent it to her. Uh, and she wrote me back and said that she was delighted to have received it and that I had done the project. I did end up meeting her in January and uh, showing her a co copy of the cover. And uh, this was a picture of her from 1980 when she was on the Court of Appeals. And uh, she looked at the cover and said, oh my goodness, I was so young back then. <laughs> One of the things in the book that, uh, in one of the essays, I can't remember which one, is uh, quoting a classmate um, of hers that described her as ravishingly beautiful. And, uh, I, and, and I think you can see that on this, on this cover, too. Um, now, I know that Ruth is an unusual combination of a very private person and, and now has become this celebrity justice. Um, did, she, did she approve of your plan to write the book? T to be honest, I didn't ask for her approval. <laughs> we'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. That's one of the prerogatives of being an academic. I get to write on whatever topic I want, I guess. But I certainly wouldn't have written the book had I thought she would have disapproved of it. And, and did you choose the people or did she suggest some people to be the essayists? I chose the people. I wanted this to be an objective and kind of distant assessment of her legacy. I preferred her not to make suggestions because I thought it would be a, a better book if it were perceived to be more objective. Um, she did mention a few suggestions that I uh, took to heart and actually made the book a better book and I still thought was uh, appropriately objective. Uh, now, here's a question from the audience, and I want to congratulate the audience on these interesting questions and your handwriting. It's really, really very good and clear. Justice um, Ginsburg has supposedly said that yours is the best book about her work. Do you think that's correct? I do, because it's the only book about her. <laughs> there, are, there are many uh, that are in the pipeline. Uh, and they are mostly biographies of her. And there are many books that tangentially deal with her as one of the leaders uh, in women in the law, along with other people. 
But this is really the only book devoted to her legal legacy. It's not a biography. It is an assessment of her legal legacy. I suspect it may be the only book in that specific genre that will ever be written about her. Um, she did mention that she likes the book to the New York Times, and, and I take her at her word because she, uh, she's an honest person. <laughs> and she says when she doesn't like things, too. So. <laughs> Uh, have, have Justice Ginsburg's views or arguments changed since she was first appointed to the Supreme Court? Why or why not, do you think? Yeah, I think, um, I think she's been remarkably consistent over the years. She has the advantage of having one or two particular, particular doctrines that she cares deeply about, namely equal protection and civil procedure. And as a result, she has been the leader in the court on those issues. And she's had a relatively clear vision on both for uh, most of her time in the law. And so she's been able to be consistent in those areas. Um, she has written in other areas, such as criminal justice, international law, federalism, separation of powers. And I see mostly consistency among those doctrines as well but she hasn't written in those areas with quite as much frequency or force, and so it is a little bit difficult to tell how her judicial philosophy has evolved uh, since she's been on the court. Now, here's a, a personal uh, one, a question. Um, besides gender discrimination, which she definitely uh, faced and t talks about, did Ruth Bader Ginsburg face any religious discrimination? I think that she, um, she did, and she references that in the context of the other discrimination that she faced. For example, she has said that being a woman, a Jew, and a mother was just a bit much for prospective <laughs> employers in the 1960s and 70s. Whether she experienced discrimination based solely or overtly on her uh, religion, she's quieter about. Uh, she's been much more upfront about the implications of gender discrimination in her past. Um, is it true that Justice Ginsburg and Justice Scalia spend time together listening to opera and are good friends? It is true, and it's not as unusual um, or curious as you might first expect. They are, obviously, they are... Um, political antipodes, <laughs> and so they don't often agree in decisions on the court. Scalia's opinions can be acerbic, but Ginsburg has a very thick skin, and she understands that that is just business, and they are willing to stick to their ideological guns in the footnotes of the Supreme Court reporter, and then leave that in the courthouse and go enjoy each other's company outside of work. And I think they both do. I think Scalia makes her laugh, and uh, in, they share a love of art and opera and good company, and Ginsburg's an excellent listener. And so I think that they get along very well after 30 years together, both on the D.C. Circuit, which is where they first um, were colleagues and the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, now, here's an interesting question. 
why do you use Seminole when talking about Ginsburg? Uh, I don't think that ovular would be right, <laughs> but how about Germinal or, or RBG's own path marking? Now here's an unfair question, the writer says. How do you predict the Supreme Court will vote on Obamacare and same-sex marriage? Well, I, I won't read the tea leaves because it's only as good as anyone else in the room, frankly. Um, I, uh, I won't comment on Obamacare, but um, I think her inclinations uh, are pretty well represented in the first Obamacare decision, which is that she's likely to uphold it uh, and express reasons for doing so. The same-sex marriage cases, as I mentioned in my remarks, I don't know how the court will come out, but I do think, I do think that she sees um, same-sex marriage as an equality issue rather than a privacy or a due process, substantive due process rights issue. And if that doesn't come out in the opinions, then, which I think actually it probably will in one or more opinion, uh, then she's likely to write separately and make that argument uh, as a supplement to whichever way the court decides. Um, and that really will be a major part of her legacy, which I should say is ongoing. It's an ongoing legacy, and she's still in the court. Um, but I think that really will be a part of her legacy, and, and one that's consistent with the way she has always approached equal protection uh, issues in that it really is about ensuring that segments of society are able to reach their full citizenship potential. And that goes just as surely for gays and lesbians as it does for women or men. What victories of RBGs would you, I, I like calling her that, uh, RBG, would you pinpoint as most significant? Um, you, you have pointed that out, but I think maybe summing it up an answer to this question would be good. Yeah, so VMI is clearly her path-marking decision <laughs> on the court, and uh, that has uh, been replicated in pretty much every constitutional law casebook out there. It is the opinion to go to when looking at uh, gender equality under the United States Constitution. Uh, that one will live forever. She uh, has been engaged in a number of other uh, decisions, um, some of which she didn't write, but that she nevertheless influenced. So there was a case called Redding, in which a teenage girl was accused at school of carrying prescription-strength ibuprofen, uh, which was um, prohibited by the school. And school officials strip-searched her in order to try to find it. They found nothing, and she and her mother sued uh, for a Fourth Amendment violation under Section 1983, an unreasonable search. Uh, and at oral argument, the conservatives on the court and some of the democratically appointed or uh, uh, democratic presidentially appointed men um, seemed to think that there was no big deal to all of this. Um, Justice Breyer said, well, you know, this is just like changing clothes in gym class, which 
kids have to do all the time. And Ginsburg interrupted at oral argument, and she said that, you know, look at the facts. She was asked to shake out her bra and uh, roll down the tops of her underpants and shake them out and then sit uh, outside the principal's office for two hours waiting. And um, she remarked afterwards that she didn't know if her colleagues on the court really understood what it was like to be a 13-year-old girl uh, in, in that kind of a situation. Um, the court ultimately held eight to one that the search violated the Fourth Amendment, and no doubt that was in part to Ginsburg's role at oral argument. So I think that in addition to some of her most important opinions, she will be remembered for the way she helped the court operate as an institution. She's an incredible questioner at oral argument, often homing in on exactly the uh, right questions to ask in the direction that the court should go, and she helps to shape opinions even when she's not writing them. And so even though many of her opinions, uh, many of her most important opinions are confined to certain areas, even when she doesn't write, she is a powerful force on the court that will be remembered. We'd uh, like to remind our listening audience that this is a Commonwealth Club program called The Legacy of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Now, given the political atmosphere today, uh, would an advocate like RBG ever be considered as a first-rate or noble candidate or nominee for the Supreme Court, do you think? I think so, and in her confirmation hearings for the U.S. Supreme Court, she refused to distance herself from any of her previous writings or any of her previous positions from the role that she played at the ACLU, um, from her criticism of Roe versus Wade. She maintained very consistently and firmly that her judicial philosophy was in the record and was accurately represented by that record and that she was uh, not going to distance it herself from that. And she was confirmed by wide margins uh, even at that time. Uh, so I, I do believe that those with the background that she has had uh, can be powerful candidates for even the highest court in the land. Uh, there, there is a clear retained discrimination relating to racial distribution at all the campuses of the University of California. That's the premise of the question. In your opinion, will this soon be challenged again? And I assume, what do you think RBG would make of it? Uh, well, being a faculty member at a University of California campus, uh, I um, won't comment on the premise, but if, uh, but I would say that racially, race discrimination challenges in higher education are major focal points for litigation. And um, this has happened at the University of Michigan, at the University of Texas, uh, and they make their way to the US Supreme Court. It's a highly divisive issue, um, and Ginsburg has consistently been on the side of allowing affirmative action programs to try to create more balance in enrollments at public institutions. I see very little reason 
uh, to suggest that she would change her position for the University of California if it ever came to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, you, you mentioned that the, um, the opinion, um, I've forgotten the name of the case, but was eight to one about the young girl and the unreasonable search. Who was the one? I, I'd, have to, I'd have to look that up again, but it was almost certainly either Thomas or Scalia. Do you know what she has done to inspire uh, other women to go to law school and to join the ranks of lawyers? Yeah, so she's been extraordinarily outspoken and has had a wide media presence for a Supreme Court justice, uh, particularly in the last five years. And I think just her face out there and her very strong voice for women out there has been an incredible motivator for young women to go to law school, to become lawyers, to set their sights on being judges, justices, um, to being in the political arena. You know, she, Justice Ginsburg, began her career at a time in which it was almost unthinkable for women to go to law school. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. there was never any doubt in her mind that she wanted to be on the United States Supreme Court someday. I mean, she dreamt big. And she went out there and made it happen. And that story alone is an inspiration to young women everywhere. Now, what, what do you think would be her opinion uh, on regulating foods prepared and sold to children? For instance, sugared drinks. I guess I really don't have any idea. <laughs> Given the clearly racial aspect of the recent massacre in Charleston, would Justice Ginsburg say domestic terrorism should be charged in that case? Again, I don't know. Her opinions have not given any indication on how she would view a charge of domestic terrorism on certain facts. Um, I do think that she would be much more likely to allow the government, the other branches of government, namely Congress in defining the, um, the crime and the president in uh, determining how to prosecute the crime, she would be much more willing to give them the space to articulate reasons for declaring something to be a matter of domestic terrorism or not. She does and has always consistently adhered to a very limited judicial role um, one is that is prescribed by the Constitution and that does not infringe upon the other powers uh, wielded by the other branches. I suspect that she would respect that separation of powers in a case like that. Uh, could you compare Sandra Day O'Connor, who I'm sure you all know was the first woman appointed to the Supreme Court, could compare her legacy to RBG's? Well, so... Um, Justice O'Connor has the distinction of being the first woman on the U.S. Supreme Court, and 
no, nothing can take that away. And she was herself a path marker for someone like Justice Ginsburg. Um, they were terrific friends on the court. And in gender equality cases, they were often on the same side. O'Connor was a moderate, um, more conservative in certain arenas, but when it came to gender equality, she tended to vote with Justice Ginsburg. Um, Justice Ginsburg, though, really has the legacy for gender equality in the law. Um, in fact, when the VMI opinion was uh, decided, the uh, opinion was initially assigned to Justice O'Connor, and Justice O'Connor uh, said that Justice Ginsburg should be the one to write the opinion uh, because this was something that Justice Ginsburg had pursued for many years and was really part of her legacy. I think that when Justice O'Connor stepped down, Justice Ginsburg lost a, a terrific friend and colleague and was very sad to see her go. How many essays in your book uh, have been written by minorities and women? Never, never counted. <laughs> so there are 16 essays and 11 were written by minorities or women or both. You must have had a terrible time finding them. Uh, could you explain RBG's vote against the Jewish boy born in Jerusalem not being able to have his birth certificate or passport? Yes. Uh, so this was a recent case um, that allowed the um, State Department to decide what to print on a passport, particularly when it came to uh, birthplace of Jerusalem. And um, I think her vote can best be explained by her appreciation of the separation of powers between president, Congress, and the courts. Um, she has articulated a vision of how the various governmental actors can have space to speak and articulate what the law means in certain areas. And this goes also for her jurisprudence in international law. She is and, and federalism, uh, enabling states to weigh in as well. She has consistently took, taken a more uh, limited role for the courts to enable each law-speaking institution to be able to enter the conversation on important questions like this. And creating that space, I think, is more important to her, at least it was in this case, than insisting that Israel be um, marked on a passport. Uh, how did she make it possible to become a Supreme Court justice? How did she do it, I think, is, is uh, the question. Well, that's a great question. And I think, you know, in addition to having, to thinking big and dreaming big, I think everyone underestimates her ability to perform and when she's called upon to do so. She's a quiet and reserved person. Uh, she has great stories to tell, but in, you know, conversations, she sometimes can be difficult to get a read on. But when she was um, considered for a position on the Supreme Court, I think she really performed well. And she, um, she was just a wonderful person to be around on Capitol Hill. And I think when President Clinton interviewed her, I think he became quite smitten with her. Um, she demonstrated a 
wonderful vibrancy in how she interpreted the law. And of course, she had a very compelling personal story as well. Uh, and so I think it was her ability to be consistent in her uh, jurisprudence, to have a winning personality, and to put both of those together in a way that made her confirmation compelling, um, that enabled her to be on the U.S. Supreme Court. I, I would just like to add um, that uh, you, you can't underestimate what it's like to have a truly great lobbyist for you, and that was her husband, Marty Ginsburg. Uh, it was really amazing, uh, his, um, the campaign that he waged um, uh, uh, for her all along, and, um, uh, and a very impressive um, tax lawyer. He was a tax lawyer, but um, uh, one of the most touching stories um, in, in the book, I think, is, um, uh, is on uh, when he was near death, he told um, a friend that the greatest thing that he had done was to enable, was to enable Ruth's career. Um, and I think that was, that was a beautiful thing. Can I just say a word about that? I mean, they had a 50-year marathon of love and support throughout their marriage um, through... Fears of uh, cancer. Um, both of them had had bouts with cancer through um, children, through different careers, and through all of that, they supported each other tremendously. Um, Marty supported Ruth, and Ruth supported Marty when it came to it. And um, they had incredibly different personalities. Marty was this happy-go-lucky guy, very outgoing, an extrovert. And um, Justice Ginsburg was more reserved, but they complemented each other so well and made a very powerful partnership together. And um, Professor Babcock is right. Uh, Marty was one of her best champions during her confirmation proceeding. The, the, um, it, let's see, I, I, I wanted to ask you one other thing. Has this work and familiarity with Ruth's jurisprudence given you uh, an opinion on whether there ought to be a, a mandatory retirement age for justices. That's uh, really beyond my ken. <laughs> but I will say that there have been a number of calls for her retirement for political purposes. And uh, I have to say that you know, she has the best job in the world. She does it quite well. And I would never ask someone who has had such a career and such an incredible role to step down before she is ready. I just have uh, one other question here. Um, uh, what about equal protection for religious liberty of conservative Christians? For instance, the, the photographer uh, uh, wanting to opt out of photographing gay marriage. Yeah, that's a tougher one because her jurisprudence in this area has been overshadowed by justices who have written uh, more and more forcefully in it. Um, so I really couldn't speak to how she would, she would decide cases like that. So I think, I think we're coming to the end. One more question. Let's see, we have time for one more question, and it's being run up here. Uh, <laughs> Re-retirement, uh, this is a comment. I was lucky to hear John Paul Stevens in D.C. two weeks ago, 95, 
Uh, now, he, uh, he did retire, 95, and still going strong. Yeah, that's right. And um, Justice O'Connor, too, has made um, quite a, a few efforts in her civics uh, program after retiring from the court. And uh, uh, Justice Stevens has written a book about uh, potential constitutional amendments. Um, I think Justice O'Connor herself has uh, continued to sit on circuits occasionally. Um, so these are, and uh, Justice Stevens is 95. Um, I guess it just goes to say that even, um, that justices can continue to do some of their best work after having a uh, long career in the law, and um, perhaps that cuts against a mandatory retirement for Supreme Court justices. I think, I think that brings us to the end here, and thank you so much. This was just so interesting. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this week-to-week -week presentation of a recent Commonwealth Club program. I'm John Zipperer, host of Week to Week, and I invite you to find us online at commonwealthclub.org and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks so much for tuning in today. For more on us and other programs or podcasts you might have missed, you can head to michellemeow.com. See you all next week. Tune into the Michelle Meow Show weekdays at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 Eastern on Progressive Voices.